We're going to continue our look into 1 Thessalonians. Uh, the passage this morning will be found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Starting at verse 17, we're going to read all the way through the end of chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that we may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Bob. Well, we've been in the book of First, First Thessalonians. That's so hard to say. I'm going to st stumble over that this whole series. Uh, First Thessalonians. We've been in that book, uh, that letter it is. And um, a quick recap, it's a letter written by Paul after he spent time in this church in the area of modern-day Greece established a church there and then had to flee because he was in fear of his life. He was in danger of dying. And he wrote back to this young, persecuted church that had also been a loving church that had overflowed with love and spread the gospel around their area. He writes back to them after Timothy comes to him with a report, as we hear about today. We're going to be talking about today this idea kind of of the, the head and the heart, and how Paul is a man who has both, a heart that he gives away to the people, but he does it in such a way that he holds on to his head the truth. And what the Thessalonians need most, in correction and encouragement, and as Timothy even goes to exhort them. He's a man who gives his heart away to the people, 
but does it in such a way where that he holds on still to the truth, his head. So head and heart today we're going to talk about. As we come to Paul this morning in his letter to the Thessalonians, he is so good at making us uncomfortable. <laughs> Paul's really good at that. Uh, next week, the topic is sex, so I'll uh, be back next week. Uh, parents, just a little preview. We are going to be talking about sex next week, so if you choose to keep your kids in, want to be aware of that, we'll send that out in email this week as well, but we're going right to it next week. We don't, we don't skip anything here. We kind of go through the book, and whatever comes up, we talk about. So next week, it's sex. Um, yeah, he makes us uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable now, actually. <laughs> well, Paul, why does he do it? He, why does he make us uncomfortable? He's so vulnerable and transparent apparent here as he shows us what the church truly is supposed to be. As a man with heart and, and head that keeps together, he, he, he's just so vulnerable. And this sharing we're going to talk about today that he does and that he asked us to do together as the body of Christ is, is kind of like uh, what Ryan was just saying, we, a walk together, a life together, a walking side by side. As we even sang that song, they will know we're Christians by our love that we have for each other and for all the world. Life together, you might call it, as they live their common story together as a church in the gospel. So we're going to look at three ways today. Three ways today Paul makes us a little uncomfortable and challenges us as believers to look at that question. Do, we, do people know we are disciples or followers of Christ by our life, by our love? Three ways we walk together. So grab your outline. Hopefully you've got it. Take it out. Fill-ins are there for those of you who like to learn by writing and going back over notes. Growth group questions are on the back as well there. As we look at the first way we walk, here's the first one. We walk together, Paul challenges us or says in, in a mutual love and a mutual concern for one another through FaceTime. His language actually is kind of startling in these first verses of chapter, or these last verses of chapter 2, 17 to 20, and then in 3, 8, 9, he expresses this overwhelming sense of love and concern for the Thessalonians. Remember, he's concerned that as he has left, Behind, in his absence, the tempter, Satan, and others in the church who were, who were criticizing Paul would come in and disrupt and make all this work that had been done there to be, turn out to be vain, and that people would deny the, the faith, and the church would blow up or explode or just walk away from each other. And this persecution they were standing in that we're going to talk about today, Paul was concerned about that. Bring down the shepherd, if they criticize Paul, and bring down the shepherd, the sheep will scatter, was probably the thought of those in Thessalonica who were there after Paul left. And Paul wants to remind them, you know, I might not be there anymore, and people might be saying he left as a bad guy, or he was only here for a short time, he couldn't stand the heat, so he got out of the kitchen. He says, I might not be there, but remember, I love you. I love you. You know, to love someone is to personally invest in them. It's really to give your heart to them. Remember I said we're going to talk about head and heart. It's to give your heart to them so much so that if, if they win, you win. If they fall, you fall, right? If they have sorrow, you have sorrow. If they have joy, you have joy. I mean, you can invest in someone maybe like a boss does with an employee and remain kind of emotionally detached, you know, so that if they were in trouble, you'd feel maybe a little, or maybe if the employee even died, you might be, eh, that's too bad. It was kind of a costless investment, a boss to an employee. But look at Paul. 
His language is so invested. I was torn away from you, the verses say, like ripped away, but my heart is with you. I've got a great desire, he says in his words, to see you face to face. The word Paul uses there with this great desire, it's the Greek word epithumia, and it really, it means actually an over-desire. And he, every other time Paul uses it in his letters, he uses it in a negative way. It's kind of where we get the idea of idolatry, disordered loves in the heart, and over-desire for something. He always uses it as in a negative way, but here he's using it in a positive way. I greatly desire to see you face to face. It's like saying, it's almost like he's saying, I lust to see you face to face. That's strong. That's kind of uncomfortable. All right, Paul, calm down, buddy. (laughs) It's like, all right, Paul. It's a little bit kind of hyperbole. No, I don't think so, though. A bit of exaggeration. I don't think so with Paul. He has his heart tied to them. He has given away his heart to them. He is so invested in a personal way, so much so that look at chapter 3, verse 8 with me. He says to them, he says, for now we live, now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. If you're standing, still standing in the faith, if I find that out, if you're still standing in the faith in the Lord, that's my life, I live. So what's the opposite of that? If not, I die. I die if you've you've lost the faith. Man, that is strong. Talk about love and concern. And here in verses 19 to 20 of chapter 2, the first one's there, he says, you're my my hope and my joy. You're You're like a jewel in my crown. Like a jewel in my crown that I, that I will boast about and I will wear in front of Jesus when he returns and boast in front of Jesus about you. You're my jewel and my, my crown. He goes so far, verse 20, you're my glory even. You're my glory. There's, there's ownership here by Paul. A good kind. Investment. Heart investment. And it, and it resulted for Paul in this desire to, 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 to be with them, to see them face-to-face, which he says twice in the passage. How many have an iPhone and have used FaceTime? Quite a few. And if you, know, if you don't have an iPhone, you've got you know, Duo or WhatsApp or some, uh, some other app where you can see somebody on the screen. It's strange, but actually, you know, the iPhone app, FaceTime, is only about 10 years old. We really didn't have that you know, the only thing maybe Skype beat them, but that was computer-based, I think. But it's only really about 10 years old, the, the, the technology that we can just call somebody and see them face-to-face. That's in almost everybody's lifetime in the room, except maybe these two little guys over here, these little babies. <laughs> That's everybody's, in everybody's lifetime in this room, FaceTime, seeing someone face-to-face. Uh, and I think we've gotten so used to video chats uh, that we just kind of take it for granted now. We take it for granted. You can see somebody face-to-face through a screen. Do you remember that old classic movie? I love it. Um, Stanley Kubrick's 1968 classic, the 2001 Space Odyssey. You remember that, that old movie? A great movie. I love it. But I remember watching the scene when I saw it as a kid where Dr. Floyd talks with his daughter through video phone. Do you remember that? He had that chat, and it was kind of like, well, this is sort of... Crazy, kind of weird. That would be kind of cool. It was 1968, remember? If we had technology like that. I remember thinking that as I watched that, to see someone's face in real time anywhere around the world. And I think in this, he was in space and she was back on Earth, I think, his daughter. I mean, it's one thing to have a phone call, isn't it? It's another thing, though, to see somebody 
someone's face to face. Not only because so much of our communication is nonverbal, something like 90% of it or something is nonverbal, but this is the medium through which God intends for us to interact. He gave you a face for a reason. We don't walk up to each other and put our hands to hand and kind of go like this, right? We don't interact through our hands necessarily. It's primarily through our face. God intends us to communicate. Paul says FaceTime multiple times or face-to-face in this passage. He was ahead of his time, actually. He didn't realize it. FaceTime. And for us, this should be a reminder that we as God's people have always been meant to gather, to see each other face-to-face, across a table, across an aisle, across a cup of coffee or a donut. This is not an attitude... Uh, Paul has here that is, you know, church is like kind of take it or leave it. It's it's not an an attitude of kind of rugged individualism. No, no, no. Paul says, I want to see you. I'm like lusting to see you face to face. It's not a a dash to the parking lot after service kind of attitude. Paul's like, no, if I've got some face time with you, I, I live basically. That's everything for me. Now, this is Paul craving the presence of those he had ministered to. They needed him, but guess what? He needed them too. They needed him, but oh man, he desperately needed them too. This man had a real love and concern for the people. We need each other. The programs, the classes, the building, the events, these are more than anything just a means to gather us together to get us in the same room, to get us at the same place, because we need each other, to to see each other, FaceTime together. As Jesus said, when two or more are together, he says, I'm in their midst. I am there. I'm working. It doesn't mean just passively there. He's positively, actively there, working, growing them, changing them through this FaceTime interaction. Is there in each other's lives? We did a class a while back called the uh, Six Ways to Love Your Church. And one of the things we sort of came up with or talked about in that class was something called the Bell Principle. If FaceTime is really important, if us seeing each other is really important, there's one really easy win and easy way to do this. It's our Sunday morning, our Sunday gathering. We call it the Bell Principle. Be early, leave late. Why would we do that? Be early, leave late. Because we've got this window of time on, on the side of this gathering that we have here, where we can see each other, where we can interact with each other, we can talk with each other, we can give a hug, we can pray together, we can be in the same room and see each other. I encourage you, think through that. What would it look like getting here 15 minutes before you usually do and say, hey, let's meet and talk about what we read in the Bible this week together, just 15 minutes out there, or hung around and said, found out by talking with somebody, can I pray for you about that right now? I've seen some more of that going on here. I love it. The bell prince will be early, leave late. Maybe we need a church bell to ring out there. <laughs> Get everybody here. You need more FaceTime. That's, that's what I'm getting at here. That's what Paul's getting at here. And if you aren't impacted by the lack of presence of faces of the people of God in your, in your life, you need to ask yourself why. Why? Why maybe are, do I feel indifferent? I mean, some of it's the fact that we live in what um, sociologists, I would say one of the things, we, they say we live in kind of an age called liquid modernity. 
Modern time, liquid water is fluid and flowing, right? It can kind of go in and out. Liquid modernity, what they mean by that is that, man, so much of our life is fluid in the modern world. It's really rare that people stay in one place, actually, anymore. And we know people come and go in our life all the time. That's hard. We know that sometimes marriages aren't permanent, interchange and swaps, and, and kids are told, you know, when we talk about somebody who's really kind of going to make something of themselves, we kind of say, oh, he's going somewhere. What does that imply? He left his hometown to make something of himself, right? He's going somewhere. People change jobs yearly. Social media isolates us. There's all these things in our culture, we talked a lot about that last week, that work against this story that God's calling us to, the story of FaceTime face-to-face interaction. So many things work against that. I mean, it's, it's no wonder we're prone to guard our hearts. We've got all this kind of loss and fluidity of life that happens all the time. We're, of course we're prone to guard our hearts. Loss hurts, doesn't it? And so much of life is kind of liquid and fluid now. But if you think about that, the only way to truly avoid being hurt by someone or lost have lost that hurts is to totally isolate yourself. Don't give your heart to anyone. Wrap it up in a, in a, in a you know, package and duct tape it and then put barbed wire around it, right? <laughs> That's the only way to go through life and not kind of feel some of that hurt is to become totally alone and isolated. An island unto yourself. But here's the truth if that's the way you live. You will never change or grow. In fact, you'll probably not just stay stagnant, you'll probably grow cold and hard. But you'll never change or grow if you don't have face time with people. It's just the way we were meant to grow in community and influence each other, change each other. Think about Paul. He's probably one of the top five influential people in the history of the world. Probably top five. Jesus would be number one, but Paul would be right there behind Jesus in the top five. But think about this man. No power, no army, no bank account to to roll his ministry with, no power, with a message that most people hated, right? You're like, sign me up for that one, right? Yet he becomes one of the most influential men in the history of the world. Why? Why did his teaching carry so much influence? Because they knew he loved them. Because they knew he loved them. It was an inside-out change. He didn't come in and just say, here's the truth. Behave, you better get to it. Here's the gospel. No, he came with the truth, but he had his heart out in front. He'd already given it to the people. That's how he became one of the most influential men in all of history. You know, truth without love, without tying your heart to somebody, it's, it, it's actually, it can be hurtful. It's kind of a power play. It's sort of uh, strangling someone or it's external. It's outside-in change. But love with truth can set a community ablaze. That's how Paul was so influential. That's how he was one of the top five, I would say, influential men in the history of the world. He lived a face-to-face, inside-out kind of life with the people. That's what he calls us to. It's the first way to walk together. Mutual love, mutual concern, face-to-face. Here's our second way we walk. We walk together in suffering and against the enemy, 
with an invested interest and mutual responsibility to establish and exhort one another. I'm going to give you some time to write that one. It's kind of a long one. Leave that one up for the slide at home for a little bit because you're not going to catch that if we make it go away now. Take a minute and fill those in. Suffering together against the enemy with an invested interest and mutual responsibility to establish, exhort one another. Paul knows now as we look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, that there is um, real strength in numbers, isn't there? There is real strength in numbers. You hear about some of the wars going on right now and, and you know, calling in, conscripting, conscripting men to come in and, and forcing them to come in. Why? There's strength in numbers. Without numbers, we fall. We lose. Strength in numbers. Because we stand against a real enemy, Paul mentions here. And the enemy is... Not someone we tend to think about a lot, maybe. The enemy's not um, the neighbor across the street or next door with a really loud barking dog. Not her. It's not your boss that's just so hard on you. It's not another political party. It's not, you know, anything you can put in there. The true enemy, he knows, is the spiritual enemy, Satan. And Paul is willing to kind of sacrifice and suffer for the sake of the Thessalonians we see in these first verses of chapter 9. Remember, up to this point, he has no idea, he has no way of knowing actually how they're doing. There is no FaceTime, remember, at this time. There's no postal service, so there, it's not easy to get a letter. So he has no idea. And Paul, as he writes this, or as not as he writes this, but as he sent Timothy to them before Timothy came back and then he wrote this letter... Paul was on his biggest stage. Where was he? Acts 17 talks about it. Uh, he talks about it in this passage. He was in the town of Athens, or the city, you might say, of Athens. He was on his biggest stage. His plate was fuller than it had ever been in his life, as he was now in the city. Yet on his mind, he couldn't get the Thessalonians off his mind. He couldn't bear it. He couldn't stand it. But his plate was fuller than ever. In Athens, he would have had his greatest challenges of all his ministry as they would have dialogued and argued and big ideas would be flying around. And if Paul ever needed his team, his helping hands of Timothy and Silas and others, it was right when he was in Athens. He was probably overwhelmed with the things flying at him in the city as he shared the gospel day after day. But in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, I could bear it no longer, so I was willing to send Timothy. Now, Paul doesn't lose perspective. He could have thought, I'm a big shot. I'm on my biggest stage in Athens. I'm not sending Timothy back to little Thessalonica. I need him here. But no, Paul knew he had the perspective that the mission was bigger than just him. Do you know how much in churches infighting and even, even splits have taken place because we have lost the perspective that the mission is bigger than me or my wants or my needs or my special thing I love. It's bigger than us. It was bigger than Paul. He's so much so he was willing to lose and send Timothy off on his, at his biggest hour. He doesn't lose perspective that the mission was bigger than him, bigger than his comfort, bigger than his needs. We all need a dose of this, every one of us in this room. So he sends Timothy out to get a report. Why? We heard he's concerned in their, in their suffering. He says in these verses of chapter 3, he's, tempted, he, he's concerned they'll be tempted away from the gospel. He can't bear it. He's got to know. I want to be transparent like Paul is and real as Paul is 
that pastors, leaders, elders feel a real grief, real, when they're not sure how someone in the congregation is doing personally and especially spiritually, which they're connected. You can't detach the two. It's a real deep grief, a real concern, a real desire to know. Not just, I'm not just a busybody. <laughs> we want to know. Paul says, you will, have great, uh, you will have great affliction in the Christian life, he says in this chapter 3. You will have it. He even says, you were destined to suffer if you're a follower of Christ. Wow. That makes us uncomfortable. You were destined to suffer. You know, the report could have come back to Paul that the church had fallen, that they had abandoned the faith, or that the infighting had become so great, or Paul's reputation had been so damaged that the mission was lost. Life is hard, isn't it? In this room, we've got as many different unique challenges and pains and suffering and trials as people, and more, because more some of you are going through more than one at one time. It's hard. But it's one of the beauties of the church. When we live life together, we also get to suffer together. We realize when we live this life with face time of suffering, I'm not the only one discouraged today. So hear that. If you're discouraged today, you are not the only one in this room. You're not alone. If you feel sorrowful or depressed today or lonely or just exhausted, you are not the only one in this room. But you would never know it if you don't gather. You would never know it without that FaceTime. And Paul can bear it no longer. I don't know how they're doing. I don't know how we're doing. I'm convinced in the church that we, we haven't seen enough. It's not just Paul. We all bear this mutual responsibility for each other. As Paul's like, I, I, I can't bear it. I, I want to see you. I want to know. I can't bear it. We all bear this mutual responsibility. There's great angst and grief in my heart when someone disappears from the church. That's part of that kind of transparency I want to have with you today. When someone disappears, why? Many times, actually, most of the time, there's no real way of knowing how they're doing. And most people, when they leave a church, it's very rare for somebody to give the, the common courtesy to go to the pastor and say, hey, here's why. Because questions run through the pastor's mind. Have they abandoned the faith? Are they okay? Has someone hurt them in the church? Have they fallen away in, or fallen into grave sin? Then add to that, that as your pastor, I will be held accountable to the Lord someday for how I cared for this local flock, how I lead this church. Do you want to know how to love your elders best? Be all in here. Be here. Be present. Be in places of accountability and encouragement where you're getting face time with others in this congregation, in groups and in friendships. Pursue covenant membership at church, something that draws you in closer into the center of body life here. Do you want to know how to cause immense stress to your pastor, to your elders? quietly disappear without a word or exist just enough on the fringes to where nobody really knows what's going on in your life. That's the number one way to cause one of your elders or a pastor in stress in church life. We have a responsibility for you. And Paul, you, you see it. You feel his burden there. 
You feel it. But it's not just the pastor and elders. It's a mutual responsibility. We all have a responsibility and accountability to each other, to invest in each other. And we all will actually, not just the pastor, we all will have a, a, a time when we come before the Lord where he keeps us accountable and asks us, what did you do with your time at Bethany Church? Or what did you do with the time I gave you to live in the town of Canby with those around you, the lost? We all will have that moment, that season of life. It's for all of us. Timothy was going to go encourage them, establish them, exhort them in the faith. And so it wasn't just Paul. We all have that responsibility to encourage, exhort, and be part of that establishing of one another in the faith. That's why groups are so important. That's why classes and Bible studies are so important. That's why gathering place time is so important. We all are called to do this together. Paul says in here in this letter, though, as you get to chapter 3 and I think verse 10, he says, I want to come to you. I can't wait to see you. I love you. I long to see you. But I want to come and supply what is lacking in your faith. What does that mean? It means he's saying, I love you so much. I can't wait to see you and address your shortcomings. <laughs> really, Paul? <laughs> see, this is where we see he not only gave them his heart, he held on to his head. I want, to see, I want to come and see you, and I love you so much, I can't wait to see you and address your wrongdoings. What? Really, Paul? See, here's what we're getting at. Paul's love wasn't mere sentimentality, kind of what the world has turned love into today. It wasn't mere sentimentality. Yes, he had given them his heart, but he had held onto his head while he did it, the truth. He wasn't emotionally independent of them. He'd given them his heart, but he also wasn't emotionally dependent upon them. Does that make sense? What does this look like with the, head, the heart and the head? With you give away one or, or both and lose, give your heart and lose your head or just keep your head and don't give your heart? What does this look like? You give away your head and your heart, so you give your heart to someone and you lose your head. We would all just kind of come together and, and, and warm each other's self-esteem and need for approval at the you know, collective kindness we all share with each other. That's giving your heart and losing your head. We'd all just be a, 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 you know, a, a mutual encouragement society or something. If you give your heart to each other but lose the truth, right? Lose our heads. You see, we could just exist as a nice, friendly, sentimental community, which looks maybe like the, somebody gathers at the adult center or your quilting club or your book club or your sports team. Gather once in a while and we'd never change, we'd never grow. We wouldn't live on the mission of Jesus if that was the case. We just gave our hearts to each other, but kind of lost our heads in the process. But Paul is implying here, part of our gathering is to prepare each other to suffer. You, you can't do that by losing the gospel, losing the truth, losing the word. We could give our hearts to each other, and we wouldn't be ready for one thing that comes our way in life. The church exists in love to say, at times, hard things to each other hard things to each other. But a lot of times, you know one of the primary reasons we can't bear to do that? It's actually kind of selfish and self-centered. We've given our heart to the people and lost our head because the greatest thing and our greatest desire is just to have people like us and be happy with us and be pleased with us. But sometimes in the church, Paul says, I love you so much, I can't wait to get there and just kind of show you where you're missing some things. 
Of course, he's going to do it in a loving way. He's already given them his heart. Our love is a truthful love, the heart and the head. How do you know? How do you know for somebody who hasn't given your head or your heart in the church setting or in relationships in life? You're emotionally detached. You could walk away from this place tomorrow or a relationship in your life and it'd be no skin off your back. Maybe it's like the boss with the employee. Be no skin off your back. You know, I was trying to think of some examples for the, us and kind of pop culture for us. And the, the person that would, um, you know, hold on to his heart but keep his head. I was trying to think of that this week. And the best one I came up with was Seinfeld. <laughs> it's sort of an old reference now. I think the show was off the air 20 years, but I know we've probably all seen it. Seinfeld, he's, he had a head on him, didn't he? He was witty, clever, kind of told it like he saw it. He was perceptive. But what did he leave behind him in that show? A wake of broken lives. <laughs> people he hurt. He, he held on to his heart. Sure, he had his head, but he had no heart. And I mean, actually, the whole cast, that was kind of the funny thing of the story. They were so emotionally detached from everyone in their life. Head, but no heart. How do you know if you've given both away? You're so emotionally attached, and yet you just, you're so fearful you can't say the truth. I was thinking of Michael Scott from The Office. <laughs> you've seen that one. Oh, so, so emotional, just emotionally driven, loves the people he works with so much, so much so that he just always says the wrong thing or can never actually say what needs to be said. He's so dependent upon how others look at him and their, their acceptance of him. Oh, he loves so deeply, but the truth and saying the hard things and making sure the office function well, if you see the, saw the show, that's not there. <laughs> Some examples for us. Somebody that has both or gives both away, heart, and loses the truth and head, you're not actually really wanting another person's true holiness, true growth, true joy, true perseverance. You're wanting their approval if you're willing to give heart and head away. You need their love, but you don't need the person. You won't give any godly criticism, and you can't possibly, because you can't possibly bear their unhappiness. And so maybe we're not able to say or need to say what the person really needs to hear. You can't give criticism, but you also can't take it because your absolute identity depends upon their acceptance of you. Well, some might hear that and say, well, Christians aren't supposed to, to, to judge. Jesus says that. Judge not lest you be judged. And that's a true statement by Jesus. But a judgmental person is someone who has kept his heart Hasn't given that away in a relationship, but he holds on to his head. He's got the truth, but it comes down like a hammer. There's no heart to it. It's truth without love. It's a hammer over the head. It's loving the truth without loving the person. That's the judgmentalism Jesus was talking about. Of course, he wasn't saying we can't talk about right and wrong and sin in each other's lives. He's saying, how are you going to do it, though? Will it be with love? We're to love both with both our heart and our head. We tell the truth not to punish, but wake somebody up. That's why you would want to do it. That's a heart motive. That's a heart and head. Not to punish somebody or push them away, but to wake them up. And that's the only way real change will take place in any church or actually in any relationship. It's the only way we'll stand under suffering. Heart and head. Uh, let's talk about it. Let's maybe example of our building. If all we did was come to the sanctuary 
when we got rid of the gathering place, we'd be all head, truth. But let's imagine if we got rid of the sanctuary and only did the gathering place. We'd be all heart, we'd lose the truth. We have to have both. They're both critical. And Paul's pointing to them and says, I love you so much. I'm yearning and lusting to see you, yet I need to come and, and help you and show you where you're lacking in your faith. Paul was so invested in them and loved them so much. He didn't want their approval. He actually wanted their joy and their holiness. That's the difference. He didn't need their approval. Of course, he was, de- he, he, he was not independent of them. He loved them, but he wasn't dependent upon their approval. So he was willing to walk with them in suffering and exhort them and sometimes even say hard things. It's the second way he encourages us to walk together. So what's the third? Here's the third. We walk together in passionate, persistent, purposeful prayer. I want to see how many P's I could get in one point today. Passionate. And actually, if I said, Pastor Paul wants us to walk in passionate, persistent, purposeful prayer, we could put some more in there. So if you like alliteration, you can put that in there today. One of the great things about Paul is how transparent he is. We already said that, but he shares his fears. He shares his doubts. I'm fearful that everything will be in vain. I'm just afraid of that. He's so real with his joys and his anxieties, but he also, one of the great things Paul does in his letters, you know where else he's transparent? He shares with us his prayer life. He shows us what it means to pray and how to pray. He's passionate with earnest prayers in verse, let's read verse 10 actually first. Uh, Chapter three, verse 10, real quick. As we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. He's passionate, earnest prayers, he calls them. Heartfelt, on his knees, gritty, earnest prayers for people. He prays frequently, night and day, for this church. And it's a purposeful prayer. So it's passionate, it's persistent night and day, but it's also purposeful. It was, it was specific, not just for vague generalities. Please bless the church. Please bless the pastor. Please bless the town. It's, it's more specific than in generalities. It, it's the reason we put actually a couple weeks ago that sound forth challenge in the worship folder to write down a name or two and, and actually pray specifically for specific people, but also specifically that God would use you in their life to help them take a next step and that he would change them. Specific prayers. As we had you write those two names down. I heard a story this week, actually, kind of bubbled up to the surface and got shared that um, there's somebody in, in the congregation that had been befriended someone and been pouring into their life and praying for them for six months, and then they started praying for this person in their growth group in these last few weeks, and they were actually able to hold hands with this man-to-man as one, I think, was tearing up facing a, a, a serious surgery, and he accepted Christ. We hope it's a sincere. We want to see if there's some ongoing fruit. I know this person's connected to them as a neighbor and wants to continue to pour into him and, and have some face time. But you see, the Lord has always worked through the power and, and, and persistent, purposeful prayers of his saints, of his people. We have to be a praying people. 
Our prayer life should be specific. And how does he pray? What are some of the specific things he prays? Let me give them to you all at once. I was going to do them one by one, but let's just get them out there. He prays for spiritual growth. He prays for open doors in the church life. He prays for abounding love, as Ryan was talking about, as we sang, they'll know by our love. And then holy hearts. He prays for these four things specifically for the church. You want to know how to pray? This is, these would be just four really great ones. Ways to specifically pray for Bethany Church. Let me show it to you. In verse 10, Paul prays that he can come and supply what is lacking. That's spiritual growth. You're lacking. You still need to grow. You still need to change. I want to come. I'm praying that I can come and supply what is lacking. He'll address these themes in our next couple chapters when we look at the ways they need to grow. We're actually just finishing the intro to his letter. Paul's wordy. Three paragraphs of intro and then a couple chapters for application at the end. He was a pastor. He wanted his people to grow. Are you praying that we would grow spiritually, internally? I would even say numerically, not necessarily in church transfer, but seeing new people come to faith. Are you praying that we would spiritually grow? That's one specific way you can. Here's the second one, open doors. Paul knew he could make plans, but only God could bring them about, and so he prays for open doors there that he could get to them, that he could come, that God would make it happen. Verse 11, that he may direct our way to you. Pray for God to open up ways. Lord, open up a way so I can talk with John about the gospel. Lord, open up a way that I can show love to so-and-so. Open doors. Even though Satan had made roadblocks, he knows God can make it the impossible possible. So he prays, Lord, Direct our way to them. Pray for open doors. Here's a third one. He prays that love would abound in the church. Not just for one another, but he says all people. So that outside the church too, do you pray for us that we would be a loving people? I think you are. I know you are. But Paul says, and he knows about them, but he wants it to abound even more. You are loving people. I've experienced that love firsthand. But let's pray that it would grow even more abound in love. And then holy hearts. He says holy hearts for them. Praise for holy hearts. And that's not just growing in the process of holiness, but he says that if they be established in holiness, that they would stand in holiness. What does that mean? He would, that we would see ourselves as we actually already are. If you've trusted Jesus Christ in the eyes of the Heavenly Father, you are Holy. Of course, we want to pray to grow in holiness, grow in love, but that we would stand fast knowing, no, I'm accepted because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What he's really saying is there that we'd be gospel-minded and centered, that you would know that Christ alone is your acceptance with the Father. Not your works, not even that abounding love, even though we want to pray for it. He says you would stand fast in that knowing that you are holy in Christ. So how do we do this? It's a little overwhelming, isn't it? Paul's like the super Christian, isn't he? How do we do this? How do we live this life called the church? How do we walk together in mutual love? Through suffering and encouraging one another and building each other up and and praying for each other in these specific ways. How do we actually do it? Because it sounds really hard. And if I'm honest with you, I I don't always have, and we probably all don't have the heart Paul has 
for the people of God. It does wax and wane in life. How do we do it? You have to have the same vision that Paul had. What was that vision? That vision he had points us to the table today. The vision that Paul had. Paul twice in this passage, and actually all over this book, speaks of Jesus' return. And when he thinks of Jesus' return in our context of the passage today, he thinks of the Thessalonians as like these jewels in his crown that he would wear, boastfully even, in front of Jesus as he comes back. I mean, isn't that strange? Shouldn't Paul be saying that Christ alone is my glory? Christ alone is my joy and hope? And yet here Paul is saying, the Thessalonians are my joy. The Thessalonians are my glory. You're my joy and hope, people. I'm wearing you in my crown like jewels. Yes, of course, Christ was. He's talking here in a different, more limited perspective. He's saying, really, you're my jewels in the crown. Again, why would anybody believe my message as I go on and share, Paul says? Why would anybody believe my message if you guys weren't living it? If you weren't living it, Thessalonians. Why would anybody believe our gospel? He's saying, if, if we're not living it, all of us, jewels in the crown. Why should anyone believe our gospel if we're not living it? So he's right in one sense today. Even today, you are my glory. As a pastor, as a leader, the, the congregation that we live this life together. Why would anybody believe our gospel as we go out if we're not all living it? Like a jewel in the crown of ministry. It's not for self-pride. It's for the sake of the gospel. This was Paul's vision. He could tie himself to these people and live or die with them and make them jewels in his crown. Why? Because Jesus had already done this for Paul. He'd already shown Paul the way. I want to stand there with you someday when Jesus comes with his holy ones, he says at the end of chapter 3. I want to stand there with you in my crown. But this is not just about pastors and churches. I hope you got that today. It is, yes. But it's not just about pastors and churches. It's about our life together. That's what it's about. It's about relationships is what Paul's getting at. It's about how we change together and we walk together and we live together. Paul knew this wasn't just about keeping rules together. It was about life together. It was about salvation in Jesus Christ that we feast in together. It wasn't just about the rules as if Jesus came along and said, hey, here's your 10 ways to live the Christian life. Good luck. I'll see you at the finish line. No, that is not what Paul thought. Jesus said it a couple places in Isaiah 53, 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, well, Jesus didn't say, but it's about the suffering servant. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. In Hebrews 12, Jesus, we look to him, the founder, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What does that mean? Well, one, it means in our place he lived, he died, that's the table, he represents us to the Father, he's presented us to the Father as his bride, and as he looked at the anguish of his soul that he would go through, there was some satisfaction on the other side. And he looked at the cross, Hebrews 12 says, he looked at the other side of it and there was some joy on the other side of it. Do you know what that was? 
Do you know what the jewels in Jesus' crown are? You. You. You're his glory. You're his joy. You are the jewel in Jesus' crown. Ephesians 1.18 says, you're, you're an inheritance of Jesus. And what those verses mean is that what Paul had already learned from Jesus is that he saw you as so valuable that he was willing to go through the anguish, willing to go through the shame, willing to go through the pain for you, a jewel in his crown, that we would become his pride and joy, his ornaments, his, his jewels, as he who was our high priest would represent us to the Father. That's what a high priest did. Do you know what the, a high priest wore on their chest? Jewels. Do you know what was written on all those jewels? The names of the 12 tribes. You are his jewel on his crown. We're what makes him rejoice. And if you know that, guess what? You can give away your heart and keep your head. You can do both. You can give away your heart like Paul did and yet be a person of the truth. You can do both, love and truth. You can turn to the person next to you or the person that irritates you and you can say, actually, we're going to walk together. And I see a vision of you that someday, you might be a caterpillar now, but someday you'll be a butterfly, right? We can walk together when we have the vision that Paul did, which was Jesus' vision for the church. I want us to take a few moments and ask the Lord to grow you, to, to, to show us today how we can love each other more, to thank him that he has done something to prepare a way for us, to, to, to make us the ability to be those jewels in his crown. So as the worship team comes up to get us ready for communion, I want us to take a moment or two to contemplate, to pray, 